And so we're looking at the parables. We're looking at a very familiar parable. It's the parable often referred to as the Good Samaritan. This is one of those passages of scripture that has crossed over just out of the realm of faith and religion into everyday society. It's a common phrase used. The the phrase, the Good Samaritan, has become synonymous, even in our generation, for someone who intervenes, steps into a hazardous, difficult situation in order to render aid, to render help, to render security, to render, render protection to that individual who's in danger. Jesus tells the story to commission us to do this kind of thing, to show compassion and involve ourselves in people's lives to help regardless of the cost to ourselves. But he also does it to remind us that our faith, while it is directly in relationship to God and all he has done for us, it is a faith that becomes dynamic. It's a faith that becomes alive with our activity. The Apostle James later in the New Testament will write that a faith that is absent of any good deed, that is absent of any literal change in behavior and attitude and activity, if, if it doesn't simply have application in life, it's, it's dead. It's, it's knowledge for the sake of knowledge and it doesn't transform who we are. And so Jesus gives us a beautiful and excellent description of faith that actively engages in compassion, that helps, renders aid, but more than anything else, demonstrates the life change in us and demonstrates the potential for life change in those who are still wondering, still asking themselves, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a believer? How does that translate into everyday living? So let's go to, in the Gospel of Luke, It's one of the four historical accounts of the life of Jesus. We're going to find ourselves in chapter 10. We're going to go down to verse 25. And in this passage of scripture, we find the parable. But there's a little bit of history we need to know in this passage of scripture to completely grasp what Jesus is getting at and the impact of it. And so let's go to Luke chapter 10. Let's go down to verse 25 and let me start to fill in a little bit of the scenario. The place that Jesus is talking about is a real historical place. He is in a crowd of primarily Jews and they would understand exactly where he's talking about. They would understand exactly the kind of attitudes that he's demonstrating, but it is much different than here in the United States and more specifically here in the state of Texas, more specifically here in the region that surrounds Tomball in which our church ministers. And we have to move out of that historical setting into a contemporary setting to understand the point Jesus is attempting to get across. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho is a real road. It's about 17 miles long on that journey. Jerusalem is a little over 6,000 feet in elevation. Jericho is nearly at sea level, and so there's this huge elevation gap that takes place. It is through a very arid and difficult region. It always has been. It is today. I know of one scholar who actually said that in his opinion, after traveling the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, that it was just as dangerous, just as hazardous today, even by a vehicle, as it was back in this day when they would have been traveling by foot. 
It has sheer cliffs along the road. It is an area and it's a region filled with caves. Those caves became the habitat, became the the location for bandits and, and robbers and murderers and basically all those of an ill sort of frame of reference, criminal frame of reference. And so it was extremely hazardous to travel on that road. It was so hazardous that most people never traveled by themselves. We're going to find in this story an individual who did travel by himself, and as a result, he, his vulnerability creates a scenario in which he is significantly injured. There's one other piece culturally about this road from Jerusalem down to Jericho. It was built originally so that Orthodox Jews who had come to hate the nation and nation state of Samaria could travel from Jerusalem to Jericho without having to travel the normal pathways which would take them through Samaria. Now this isn't just simply racial bias. This is a long history brewing feud that incorporated everything in Jewish life. The Samaritans were the first ones to be conquered by Assyria. Assyria's method of conquering was quite honestly, militarily speaking, a brilliant strategy. They would take out typically the best of the leadership, the best of the business, the best of the academics. They would take all those and bring them back to Assyria as captives, prisoners of war. They would leave behind them the the lower echelons of society. And so they knew that that group that's left behind wouldn't have the leadership, wouldn't have the skill sets, wouldn't have the academic or intellectual capability to create some kind of revolution or retake their land. And so it was a way to maintain that land without military presence. In addition to that, they would literally bring an influx of primarily Assyrian Assyrian women into that region, and eventually they would intermarry, and that intermarriage would defile not only the community, but it would defile the faith and the religion of that area. And so the Jews of Jerusalem, because they were brought into Assyria and Babylon later, hated the Jews in Samaria. Same background, same ethnicity, same, same lines of genealogy, but the difference was they, because the scriptures forbid this type of intermarriage, they were furious, angry, and developed this huge, feudal attitude about Samaria to the point that they create this road from Jerusalem to Jericho to avoid going through Samaria. And so the story is packed with all types of cultural information, all types of cultural circumstances, all all types of situations that may not be our same experience today. But Jesus will take all of this and laser focus it in to understand how particularly people of faith should react to those in our community, to those that we come on, even if it's just in general circumstance and we have no prior or existing relationship with compassion that in the end will mimic and mirror the compassion of God. The apostle Paul would write in the book of Romans in chapter five. He would say that 
occasionally somebody might be willing to die for another person. He goes on to acknowledge that that's a rarity and that it doesn't typically happen. That it's the exception or it's a, it's a bit of an anomaly when somebody is willing to die for someone else, especially if it's someone else they don't know. And the Apostle Paul uses that statement to segue and drive home the point that while we were helpless, and that's literally what Romans chapter five, verse eight says, while we were helpless, God sent his son. While we were still sinners, Paul says, Christ died for us. What we see in the story of the Good Samaritan is Jesus, through illustration, through, a, through a, a story that's just made up strategically to help the people he was talking to that afternoon, as well as us today, 2,100 years later, help us understand that God's work is a redemptive work. And when God's redemptive work, when God brings life change into our lives by our faith in Jesus, we are now commissioned, as Jesus will literally say in this passage of Scripture, to go and do likewise. God gave everything. In giving his son, he gave everything so that you and I might have life. In the moment when we're helpless, in the moment when we're deserted, in the moment when there's no hope for our future, Jesus steps in. And Jesus commissions us to do the same. So let's begin to look at this story. That's a lot of historical information. Take a deep breath. It's a, it's a lot, but to, to, to bring in all the dynamic of this passage, you have to have some understanding of what Jesus is dealing with. The specific setting is a religious setting. The religious leaders are attempting to trick and test Jesus to find some way to remove or dethrone him from his popularity. At this point, Jesus is already popular with the crowds. He's already popular with the masses. And that's upsetting the cultural structure and hierarchies of the community. And they're attempting to do that. So the, the man who's asking the question has no legitimate purpose. His whole purpose is to cause problems, to ostracize, and in some way, hopefully damage Jesus' relationship. And that's what you see in verse 25. <clears throat> when it says... Then an expert in the law, this is religious law, so that we're talking about the Old Testament, primarily the first books of the Old Testament. The, the expert in the law stood up to test him. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It seems like a legitimate question, but the truth is, in this case, this is religious arrogance at its best and its most obnoxious. He's asking Jesus a question he's already decided in his mind he has an answer for. Jesus, as he typically did in these scenarios, immediately turns it in verse 26 when he says, well, what is written in the law? The man responds by quoting Deuteronomy chapter six, verse five. He says, he acknowledges that it's in the law and Jesus asks how he applies it. Verse 27, he quotes Deuteronomy chapter six, verse five. Love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. And then he quotes a second reference out of the law from Leviticus chapter 19, and your neighbor is yourself. 
Now, every good Jewish boy and girl knew this answer because they were commanded in Deuteronomy chapter six to be taught it night and day and throughout the day. They were taught to memorize Deuteronomy chapter six, verse five, and they knew it. They knew it, they recited it at meals, they recited it when they woke up, they recited it when they went to sleep. If you knew anything in Jewish religious culture, you knew Deuteronomy chapter six, verse five. And so he's quoting back to Jesus the law that everyone knows. And even the Leviticus 19 reference is something that everybody knew was a commandment to put into place what happens when you personally love God and how he gets activated and lived out in our life. To love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus acknowledges that and says, you've answered correctly. He told him, do this and you will live. But the arrogant religious leader, still trying to justify himself, turns to Jesus again and says, who is my neighbor? Now this is a bit of a, I think, a legitimate question from the standpoint, many of us understand we have faith in God, we want to live a godly life, but oftentimes where we fail, where we stumble, is on the application. How do I do this on Monday after I've learned it on Sunday? And Jesus gives us one of the clearest explanations, one of the simplest in some ways parables that he will give to anyone to understand how my faith gets lived out on the following day and how the living out of my faith is in reality the preparation and the ability to anticipate and look forward to eternal life. All the things we've sung about this morning are true. All the beautiful imagery of heaven is true. And Jesus says, while you're still here, live this way. Absolutely prioritize your relationship with God and then absolutely prioritize the living out of that relationship with God with the people you come in contact. And the story begins. We'll look at four different characters as this story unfolds. The first is where we are when we're without God. It's the injured. He's alone, he's wounded, and he's desperate. Verse 30, Luke chapter 10, verse 30. Jesus took up the question and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, that difficult, hazardous road we talked about, and he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him up, and fled, leaving him half dead. A scenario that could have been anticipated, a scenario that becomes the reality of each and every one of us spiritually. This is where we are. This is where I was before I met Jesus. Life literally robs us. Culture literally attacks us. Our surroundings and the things that come into our minds and our hearts that are void of God literally strip us of anything of value, leaving us on the side in the bar ditch of life, completely isolated, without hope, absolutely desperate, no longer do we have this idea, this arrogance like this religious leader, no longer do we have this idea, I can do this myself because clearly he can't and we can't. That's the injured, that's us. In verse 31, we see a man of superior ability. He becomes a picture of knowledge without compassion. A priest happened to be going down that road. When he saw him, the injured man, this superior person, then moves and passes by on the other side. It describes literally an intentional shifting of direction 
to avoid any connection, any influence, any response, any possible contamination, anything that might be perceived as ruining who he is. And we know this from the activities of the priesthood. There were priests in Jerusalem and there were priests in Jericho. Matter of fact, most priests actually lived in Jericho, not in Jerusalem. And when they had service in the temple, they had to leave Jericho and go to Jerusalem. And so he probably, most likely, has just finished service at the temple, which sometimes was only a once-in-a-lifetime chance. He had followed all the rituals, all the laws, all the customs. He had done everything to be able to do that. And now he's on his way back home. He's on his way back to his family. He's on his way back to his hometown when this scenario plays out in front of him and he sees the man on the side of the road and his reaction is because of his superior status in culture, because of his superior status in the hierarchies of the nation, it's to avoid, to not engage, to not do anything. Protecting his reputation above all things. Protecting his potential to do those things which were considered highly important and highly visible to the community and to the culture. I'm just gonna steer clear. I'm just going to avoid this because I don't know what the ramifications of getting involved mean to me. The next one I've titled our third character is a cautious person. Again, we know because Jesus differentiates between the priest and now a Levite in verse 32. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, also passed by on the other side. The differentiation is this. The tribe of Levite was to produce the priest, but they didn't need all the priests, and so you held out from a hierarchical perspective for those who were direct lineage of Aaron. And so the general Levites were priests They were like helpers at church. These guys had positions in the temple. They had position in the religious community, but they weren't going to offer sacrifices. They weren't going to do anything of that level or that magnitude. They just took care of things. They cleaned the temple. They they took care of information. They passed out. they They were helpers, so to speak, but they were of the right pedigree. So we have a priest who's actively serving. We have a Levite who's actively serving, not in the same significant fashion, but who takes his pedigree very serious. And again, chooses to disengage in the situation. And probably he knows the law, just like the priests do. And maybe he's concerned because the law states specifically, if you touch a dead body, and at this point, this guy is literally as Jesus describes in the story, half dead. We don't know if he's alive. We don't, you know, they don't know any of that from seeing him at a distance. And so they're making an assumption that anything I might do, I might interact with, could potentially contaminate, not literally, not physically. This is not a health issue. This is a reputation issue again. And so this man who's pedigreed without compassion, he's cautious, He avoids and he intentionally moves away and chooses a different path that doesn't require him to be engaged. Now, the long history of everything I explained in the beginning comes into play with the fourth individual who is compassionate because everybody Jesus is talking to at this moment, 
including the religious leader who's testing him and asking the question, hates Samaria. They hate Samaritans. They built a hazardous road to avoid ever going through that place. They avoided them at all costs. They were considered non-entities. And Jesus twist, because the compassionate man in verse 33, a Samaritan, the most detestable person in Jewish culture, a Samaritan is the one with active compassion. A Samaritan on his journey came up to him. When he saw the man, he had compassion. The others had compassion, but it was for themselves. I am compassionate about my position in the community. I'm not going to do anything that might jeopardize that. I am compassionate about my pedigree. I'm compassionate about my my lineage and who I am, and I'm not going to do anything to jeopardize that. A Samaritan shows up, and his first reaction is compassion. Somebody's hurt. Somebody's injured. Somebody's wounded. Somebody's alone. Somebody needs this type of assistant. When he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him and bandaged his wounds, poured olive oil, which would be like a, a balm. It would be like, like just to calm the, the, the anger of the wounds down. Poured on wine, which would function as an antiseptic. Helped him, basically did all necessary and capable first aid. Then he put him on his own animal, his own means of transportation, which means he's walking the rest of this 17-mile journey. We don't know at what point on that 17-mile trail this is all taking place, but the implication is clear. He gave the man status over himself. He gave the man's injuries significance over his own potential injuries, puts him on his own animal, brings him to an inn, and took care of him. Literally, the implication is that he stayed at least that night, if not longer. We don't have the full timing laid out. The transition in verse 35 says the next day, but it's the next day after the period of care. After he's done whatever was necessary to care for the man, to, in a sense, secure his life from his vulnerable circumstances, he goes to the front desk He takes out two denarii. That's the equivalent in that period of history as a full day's wage, lays the equivalent of a full day's wage on the counter, so to speak, gives it to the innkeeper and says to the innkeeper, take care of him. When I come back, which means he's a man of reputation, otherwise there would be no reason for the innkeeper to trust him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever else you spend. He didn't just simply care. He cared to the fullest extent. By now the religious leader is in a pit of a turmoil internally because everything he believes has just been shattered. Everything he himself would do under the name of loving the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your soul, with all your mind has just been shattered by breaking Leviticus 19 and not caring for your neighbor as yourself which is what the law does to us. It is important to obey, but the law will always break us on the throne of God's grace. We can't do it. You cannot do Deuteronomy chapter six. You cannot do Leviticus 19. You cannot do these passages of scripture from the law on your own power. We will end up like the man who's injured, alone, 
wounded and left to die unless God steps in, finds us in our woundedness, cares for our wounds, heals our hearts, removes our sin from the wounds of our hearts and our life and our soul and secures it and says from this point on, whatever this person needs, they have. God didn't just save you in that one instant when you finally thought, stopped for a moment and said, you know, I think Jesus could be real. I think I'll know him, I'll meet him. God saved us then. He continues to keep that saved. We call it consecration and sanctification, big words. That simply means we continue to grow out of that initial salvation into everyday life. And God continues to provide. There's just as much grace available for me today as a believer in Christ to continue living my life as there was on the very first night when I said, you know what, God, you're right. I'm a sinner. I need forgiveness. I want to know you. God doesn't leave us stranded. He doesn't come into our hearts when we trust him, whether that was as a kid in vacation Bible school, as a teenager in youth group in Sunday school, or whether it was as an adult in a service or in a conversation with a colleague. However we came to that point, we met Jesus Jesus has provided everything we need from that point on until we're home with him. That's what God's salvation does. And that's what believers do for unbelievers and for people we come in contact with. We give everything we have, which is all from God in the first place, that they too may be rescued. While we were yet sinners, Paul said, Christ died for us. The righteous for the unrighteous. To bring us into relationship with him and into eternity with him. Have you heard Jesus' words? I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will know and have that life. It's on your you version. It's the verse of the day today. And that's what changes us. That's what allows us, as we sang, to look forward to heaven and resurrection. God gave everything to rescue us. Our band's gonna come back, but I want to give us one challenge as they're coming and moving into place. I love the way Jesus summarizes it. He asked this man, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? He had no choice but to give an answer he didn't want to give. He hated Samaritans just as much as anybody. He was proud of his past just as much as anybody. He was obnoxious in his pridefulness and that's why he's testing Jesus. That's why he never meant for this to be a legitimate conversation from the beginning. It was false narrative from the very beginning. But Jesus corners him and he has to say, the one who showed mercy to him. And then Jesus tells him, and today Jesus tells us, go, and do likewise. All day, every moment this week, we see wounded, injured, desperate people. 
And Jesus has challenged us. Intervene. Intervene in physical matters, but most importantly, intervene in spiritual matters. Let them know God cares for them. God heals them. God forgives them. And God grants eternal life through Jesus. Let's go and do likewise.